Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Good evening. How are you? Feel real. I feel like you're sleeping on the other side of the bed tonight. There we go. That's much more comfortable for me. Look at that. Hey, uh, I was out uh, at the rec center this morning doing a little uh, walk around with the wife. We do a little bit of exercising. And uh, I was listening to you in the interview with Jim Bennett. And, uh, yes, you know, interesting conversation. But at the very beginning, you have this conversation about Midnight Mormons. And... What I found interesting is that Jim is, well, Jim starts talking about how he gets flown out there and put in a hotel, and then they go to record in uh, in Carden's garage. I guess that's better than Mother's Basement, but recording in Carden's garage. And uh, there's this note about how they had this conversation where he's very adamant about how they were very unhealthy uh, in their approach to Jeremy Runnels, in their approach to the CES letter. And how and they DeLynn. had, what's that? And John DeLynn. They were yeah, and how they, they were, had hidden DeLynn. that whole segment and never published it. And yeah. I was quite surprised. I mean, again, I know this. They they delete comments. I've put comments up just in recent weeks. Um, but that they're really not transparent with things. And for whatever their, whatever their long game is, they tend to want to keep their followers only seeing their side of the argument. And... Um, I was quite surprised they did that to Jim Bennett in, uh, in, in Carden's garage. Well, presumably the door is down, the garage door is down in the garage when uh, Carden et al. are recording. Because otherwise, I mean, it could be dangerous. It, it could be dangerous. I mean, there yeah. could be walker passersby and all kinds of, you know, uh, vagrant dogs running around, any kind of thing happening. I can't tell you how many times the Partridge family got attacked when they were rehearsing in their garage. <laughs> yeah um how's how's your week been absolutely fantastic but this this is the highlight of this week and every week awesome excellent well here we are another episode of mormonism live tonight we're going to talk about uh the times your in t-shirt. church we're oh, talk by the way yeah t-shirt. yeah so we have a good friend who sends uh who sends uh little uh postcards in the mail and and stays in touch with the both of us. And uh, he sent me this shirt and said that I needed to wear it so that I could go mano y mano with whatever shirt you were wearing tonight. And uh, which one are you, do you have on? Well, I will tell you. Here we are, baby. Look at that. Venom, right? Oh, yeah. That would be a great matchup. Thor versus Venom. Um, yeah, but Thor's got a hammer, so he probably wins. Venom has a lot of other cool stuff. Yeah, my father-in-law always said, don't force it, just get a bigger hammer. Right, that's a good, yes. Venom Venom has a symbiote. Yeah, yeah, so the symbiote can die and then Venom can just find someone else. 
Well, yeah, and you can do all sorts of. Anyway, I just wanted to bring up the T-shirt because you have you're trying yeah. to you're trying to out Marvel me, and that will not stand, good sir. It will okay. not. Stand. <laughs> all right, let's jump into it. So tonight, I thought we would kind of do this a little bit in chronological order. Um, the first one that I wanted to mention, uh, in terms of it, what we're going to talk about specifically tonight, is when LDS leadership encourages teaches. Um, uh, violent rhetoric or teaches its members to commit some sort of violence. And there were tons of stories with, you know, a bishop or a stake president. Uh, we have one of those stories tonight, but it does connect to the top 15. I really wanted every one of these to connect to the top 15 in church leadership. Uh, so that's what we'll go into. The very first one is the temple penalties. And mm -hmm. you got endowed prior to 1990, correct? Yes, way prior to yep. 1990. Thank you. And you didn't do the original penalties. We'll talk about what those said, but you took penalties that basically said, uh, "Here's here's the penalty, and and I will keep these words secret lest I take my life." Right? Uh, yes, uh, that uh, I will not divulge the A, B, and C. Rather than do so, I would suffer my life to be taken. My life to be taken. But the original ones. So I think it's like. Um, maybe right around the turn of the century between eight, the late 1800s to the early 1900s, when the church uh, adapts to the very original penalties. But here's the original ones. Uh, in executing the sign of the penalty, the right hand, palm downward, is drawn sharply across the throat, then dropped from the square to the side. Now, that was the motion, and each one of these had a motion. But then there are the three penalties that went with each of those motions, uh, and I only read the one motion, but all the other two are also sort of violent. Um, <clears throat> it said, uh, we and each of us covenant and promise that we will not reveal any secrets of this. And then it said what it was. Should we do so, we agree that our throats be cut from ear to ear and our tongues torn out by their roots. And then oh. the next one, yeah. And the next one was we and each of us do covenant and promise that we will not reveal the secrets of this. And then it was whatever it was. Should we do so, we agree to have our breast cut open and our hearts and vitals torn from our bodies. And then the last one, we and each of us do covenant promise that we will not reveal any of the secrets of this. And again, whatever that was. And then should we do so, we agree that our bodies be cut asunder in the midst and all our bowels gush out. That mm. This is some big time secret stuff. You, you're really making the ultimate promise. This isn't like a pinky swear. This is big stuff. No, Venom approves of these penalties. Yeah, yeah. And uh, in fact, I can put up on the screen here. Um, if you go to Wikipedia, just you can just go to Wikipedia and the article is uh, the endowment. And you can go down and they record the the ones that I just read. Now, I got them off a site that had them a little more complete, but you can see right there, my throat be cut from ear to ear, my tongue torn out by its roots, and so on and so forth. Um, you didn't, you didn't make these... When you have a chance. No, I did again? not. I wanted, I wanted to mention something that's just occurring to me as Please. I'm seeing these that you're putting up. No, I did not. It was... Uh, the penalties were still there. But instead of this language, it was rather than do so. I will not reveal the A, B, and C. Rather than do so, I would suffer my life to be taken. Now, it is occurring to me as you're putting it up there, 
that it's not just a matter of the excessive violence that was tamped down a little bit by 1979 when I went through for the first time and up to 1990 when the penalties were removed entirely. The language that I went through was rather than reveal them, I would suffer my life to be taken, which isn't saying that if you reveal them, you'll be killed. It's just a manifestation of the extreme secrecy that you are under as far as the obligation goes. But the language here prior to 1979, when I went through that you just read, yeah. that's different because in each of them, they say, should we do so? In other words, should we reveal any of these secret things, the name, signs and tokens? We agree that our throats be cut from ear to ear. We agree to have our breasts cut open. We agree that our bodies be cut asunder in the midst. That's different. And that's much closer to the idea that if you reveal them, then you will be killed and you're already putting yourself under obligation that you agree that that should happen. Right, right. Totally. Um, extremely violent. You're yeah, you're agreeing to have your life ended in extremely violent means. And it's it can also be understood too. again. This is something we're going to get into throughout the evening tonight. And, and bear with us. This is going to be a, maybe a little bit more difficult than usual. Maven is under the weather, and so she's not with us tonight. Just me and RFM, so I'm trying to take care of kind of the, the slides and stuff behind the scenes. But in multiple examples that we're going to go into tonight, it would be easy for the apologist to come out and say, come on, guys, you're you're missing the mark. You're, you're, you're overreaching in what these leaders are saying to do. And what I want to note is that when – you have stewardship over thousands of people, for instance, in early church history or millions of people in the modern moment in Mormonism. There are always people who are mentally unstable, folks who suffer from mental illness, folks who are so zealous about the gospel that they uh, are looking for ways in which to defend the kingdom and to be uh, to stand up for Christ. And when you use rhetoric, for instance, such as this temple, uh, these temple penalties, not only are you putting one person under covenant that they will allow their life to be taken by violent means, but you're also sort of telling everybody else that if somebody in the church gave up their secret tokens and signs, maybe you're the one who needs to take them out this way uh, in order to... Um, fulfill, you know, what God has asked these people to prompt. Somebody has to do the cutting and the slicing and the dicing uh, to end these people's lives. And it's easy for an overly self-righteous person to think they're the one to do it. Right. It becomes open season at that point. And once again, I'm reminded of the Lafferty's who did atrocious, horrible things, but they did it because they took Mormonism seriously. Right. And by that, I don't mean contemporary Mormonism, but I mean the old teachings, right? From Brigham Young about blood atonement. I know you'll get to that. This is also a manifestation of the same kind of idea, I think, in the original temple penalties. But what happens is that we, we learn about Mormonism from the missionaries when they come and teach us. We go to church. We have this modern correlated version where they have ignored not talked about 
and not disavowed any of these earlier teachings. So what happens is, is that if you start studying and you find out what these earlier teachings are, they've never been disavowed. And the thought process, at least it was with me, I don't think I'm alone in this, is that now you have stumbled upon the meat of the gospel, the deep things of the gospel, the things that the church is always promising to you, but never provides. And so once you're there, if you start taking that seriously, then it can lead to a world of hurt, as we found out with the Lafferty brothers. Yeah. And and so the next one we're going to go into here are the Danites. And mm. um, I'm going to let you talk about them. But the, the one thing I want to add before you do so is to just note that the church and its apologist, and this happened for a decade early on in my membership in the church, the church and the, Dan, uh, and the apologist uh, clearly articulated an argument that said, yes, the Danites existed, but also they aren't, we have no evidence that they are connected to church leadership, that church leadership approves of what they're doing, and uh, they, are, they are essentially going rogue. Right. That's exactly what I read and understood back in the 1980s when I was into apologetics, too. There's the Danites. It's in Missouri. It's 1838. There's a lot of conflict going on, but they had nothing to do with Joseph Smith. They're a rogue organization operating separate from and independent of any direction or knowledge of Joseph Smith. And then I was reading in this great book, Method Infinite, which is, of course, about Masonry and Mormonism. Well, they've got a whole section in there. It's a rather lengthy chapter about the Danites. And one of the things that caught my eye Forgive me, I'm a little bit froggy tonight. But um, it was from Joseph Smith's journal, where it said, Thus far, according to the order of the Danites, we have a company of Danites in these times. This is from, what is it, 1839? Yeah, the and you're journal on the page I've got on the screen, right? 219 and 220. Um, I'm not sure if that is it. Okay. Yeah, Yeah, it is, actually. Thank you. It was actually journal journal March to September of 1838, because this was happening in 1838. So here's what Joseph Smith writes in his journal or has dictated in his journal. Thus far, according to the order of the Danites, we have a company of Danites in these times. Sounds like he knows about them. To put to rights physically that which is not right and to cleanse the church of very great evils, which hath hitherto existed among us, inasmuch as they cannot be put to rights by teaching and persuasion. So in Joseph Smith's own journal from 1838, he's saying that he knows about the Danites and their purpose is to put to rights physically what can't be made right by trying to reason with people. So I thought that was remarkable. Uh, go ahead and say something, Bill, and I'm going to try and clear my throat and get a drink of my favorite beverage. Sure. Um, what strikes me here is Joseph Smith is clearly articulating that these are the men that if we can't talk somebody into doing things the way we want to, this is the group of folks that we'll send to make you do what we want you to do. Right. It's almost like section 132 about uh, plural marriage, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. first wife gets the veto on the second wife, but if she says no, then you go ahead and do it anyway. Yeah. She gets destroyed either way. Yeah. Yeah. It's a similarity, isn't it? Yeah. So I remember bringing this up to you when we were talking on the phone the other day, and you had mentioned the church essay on violence in Mormonism. 
Of course, it's called Peace and Violence in Mormonism, but it's about violence in Mormonism. And in that essay, you said that you thought the church had already basically acknowledged that Joseph Smith knew about the Danites. And I had missed that, but I went back and I checked it. And darn, if you weren't right, Bill, here's what it says in the church essay. Historians generally concur that Joseph Smith approved of the Danites. That's amazing. But of course, they go on to soften it in the sentence. But that he probably was not briefed on all their plans and likely did not sanction the full range of their activities. That cracks me up that last line to try and make it better. But the important part is historians generally concur that Joseph Smith approved of the Danites. Yeah. So you got to know about him to approve of him. And to note that I was talking to you during the week that, for instance, using the mafia as an example, the the head person in a mob always tries to stay a layer away from the atrocious things that are being carried out. Now, they certainly happen with his approval. And so the reason I think the church says this, because if I'm not mistaken, there is some evidence that Joseph Smith gave them uh, gave them kind of their call of duty to do and didn't really want to be brought in on everything because then he would be in the know and be somewhat more directly connected. And so mm. it makes much, it makes a lot of sense that Joseph Smith wouldn't know every particular that he would tell the Danites, here's what you do. Here's your responsibility. When people are bothering me and not, and not doing what we ask them to do, I'll, I'll give the signal. I'll, I'll somehow convey who it is but then you go ahead and go take care of business. Right. And so if you go to the point where Joseph Smith approves of the Danites, really what basis are you having for saying that he probably was not briefed on all their plans and likely did not sanction the full range of their activities? That seems tenuous after having acknowledged that Joseph Smith approved of the Danites. And it reminded me of a similar type of sentence in a different essay on the church website, the one about the book of Abraham. Because in the book of Abraham, if you get to the bottom of that essay, there's a footnote, 46. Let me, and let if me you go look at that footnote, quick. I'm sorry? Let me find it here real quick. Book of Abraham, yes. gospel topic. Yes. And this is where they're talking about uh, the different themes or stories that show up in the book of oh, Abraham that are also found in ancient texts. And those parallels are put in the main body of the essay. But when you get down to the bottom, you get to footnote 46. Do you have it there? I'm trying to find it. Really? Okay. Yeah, well. let's see if I go LDS.org and see what happened. I know it's Church of Jesus Christ, but that just, there we go. Translation, historicity of the book of Abraham. And you said yes. footnote 46. So you got to go all the way to the bottom. They're not going to make it easy on you. No, no. Here we are. Okay. So right there, and it's the last sentence of the last footnote <laughs> where this is what it reminds me of. Some of these extra biblical elements were available to Joseph Smith through the books of Jasher and Josephus. So there's the acknowledgement, just like the other one acknowledges that Joseph Smith approved of the Danites. But then it goes on to try and soften it by saying, Joseph Smith was aware of these books, but it is unknown whether he utilized them. Both it's also unknown if he used the catalyst theory, but we have no problem imposing that. Ooh, zing. Nice one, Bill. Yeah. That pink sport coat is serving you well. Look at that. But the image it evoked in my mind is that we find Joseph Smith holding a smoking gun in his hand 
and there's a dead man at his feet. And we acknowledge all of that, but then we say, but we're not completely sure whether Joseph Smith shot the guy. Right. And the Danites were authorized by him. They're doing his beck and call. He's the Mormon prophet of the restoration. Sure as hell, they're doing what he wants them to do. Right. And this leads us to um, something that I found absolutely mind-blowing. Still in the same book, Method Infinite, by the way, by Cheryl Bruno, Joe Steve Swick III, Nicholas Letursky. And um, here's the thing, though, is that Joseph Smith was a master of doublespeak, as it turns out. And here's what I mean. I'm just going to read this from the book. This is page 219 in Method Infinite, the chapter titled Angel at the Threshing Floor. In his public interactions with Danite participants, Joseph Smith rarely supported illegal actions overtly. But he preached homilies that made clear his objectives. And homilies, uh, in this case, has to do with stories. For example, after Rigdon, after Sidney Rigdon delivered the Salt Sermon, which was June 17th of 1838, and Sidney Rigdon urged the Danites to tread dissenters underfoot. By the way, these are members of the church that they are viewing as dissenters because they're not going along with the program the way they want them to. And this also included, I think, the three witnesses, all three of them, under the dissenter category. Joseph Smith addressed the men, so he's addressing the Danites. Reed Peck describes him as stopping short of Rigdon's violent rhetoric. Now, Reed Peck, by the way, Reed Peck was a member of the Danites, and he wrote this down in 1839, just the following year. So the provenance on this is remarkably good. It's very shortly after the incident. And even on Wikipedia, when you look up the Salt Sermon, you'll see there's a note there that after Sidney Rigdon spoke, Joseph Smith stood up and appeared to tacitly endorse the violence that Sidney Rigdon was overtly promulgating. I mean, it's a Salt Sermon because he's comparing the dissenters to the the salt uh, that's lost its savor and it's good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden underfoot of men. So here's what Reed Peck, who was present for this this meeting and this address by Sidney Rigdon says what happened next when Joseph Smith stood up. Pay attention. Joseph Smith, in a short speech, sanctioned what had been said by Rigdon. Though, said he, this is quoting now from Joseph Smith, I want, I don't want the brethren to act unlawfully. Okay, we can't disagree with that. I don't want the brethren to act unlawfully, but we'll tell them one thing. Judas was a traitor and instead of hanging himself was hung by Peter. And with this hint, the subject was dropped for the day, having created a great excitement and prepared the people to execute anything that should be proposed. So this is what Repeck says Joseph Smith said. Judas, he says, I don't want you to do anything unlawful, but I'm just going to tell you one other thing, and that's Judas was a traitor, and instead of hanging himself, was hung 
by Peter. What do you think of that? My mind was blown. That seems like a significant amount of double speak. And we see these kind of, um, you know, Joseph Smith said, what is it? Uh, Truth is made manifest in proving contraries, right? And there's this idea that Joseph's got tons of polygamous wives all around. And he says, you know, these guys say that I've got more than one wife. I can see none but one, you know, and there seems to be a pattern of behavior in Joseph's life where he says either two things that are completely violate each other as far as being opposites or contradictions, or he lives a contradiction where something is happening in his, his environment. And he speaks of it as if it's not the case. And, um, just as you know, we're only two pieces into this uh, episode, and we're already running into this. I think more than twice already. Well, right, and this isn't the only time Joseph Smith does this. I'd never heard of this before. Uh, by the way, Joseph Smith has long since completed his Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, and there are two places in there where it talks about the death of Judas. One I think is at the end of Matthew, the other one at the beginning of Acts. And they're contradictory. One says that Judas went out and hung himself. And the other one said that he ran out in the field, fell headlong, and his bowels burst asunder. And Joseph Smith's translation seeks to harmonize those two accounts and indicates that he hung himself. The rope broke. That's what caused him to fall and all of his, his bowels to gush out. There's nothing in the Joseph Smith translation that talks about Peter going out there with a rope and hanging Judas from a tree. So he had the perfect chance to keep his story consistent since he was in charge of the story at both turns, and yet he still contradicts himself. Well, Joseph Smith's view of the scriptures is apparently pragmatic, I think is the nicest way I can put it. Yeah. But here's another example, though, so that you don't think this is the only one. Excuse me. At a later meeting... Joseph Smith took the pulpit and described the Latter-day Saints as an injured people, etc. He told the crowd that he could not recommend they take property that did not belong to them. Okay, well, that's good. You shouldn't take property that doesn't belong to you. And this was in their upcoming expedition to Davies County. So these people who are not members of the church don't be taking their property. That's not right. But then he says, He then related an anecdote about a captain who appealed to a Dutchman to purchase potatoes for his troops. The Dutchman refused. Well, of course he's going to refuse. He's a Dutchman. Sorry about that for all my Dutchman friends out there. The Dutchman refused to sell. So what happens? This is what Joseph Smith tells. After telling them right at the beginning that you shouldn't take property that doesn't belong to you. He then says, the captain then charged his company several times not to touch the Dutchman's potatoes. But in the morning, there was not a potato left in the patch. Yeah, sometimes you say something publicly and then privately you make different orders. If anybody's seen A Few Good Men, that's how the whole movie plays out, is what's said publicly versus what's said privately. Right. And that is not the same source as Reed Peck. That's the source of Samson Avard in document containing the correspondence of Samson Avard. So, and he was the head, at least the titular head of the, the Danites in Missouri, Samson Avard. So he probably knows something about what he was talking about. Yeah. 
So anyway, I wanted to share that and and the book by Cheryl Bruno, etc. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but by these three wonderful authors also says this kind of doublespeak by Joseph Smith was not an anomaly. They give these two instances. And I remember having a phone call with Cheryl prior to her coming on the show. And I was telling her how much I enjoyed this particular chapter. I was learning so much. It didn't have to do anything to do with masonry, at least not these parts that I was finding out about. But I told her how great it was. She said that was her favorite chapter to write. And she said, yeah, she has several more incidents of Joseph Smith using this kind of doublespeak. And if I'm recalling her correctly, she was planning, hopefully, to write a paper on that, including all the other instances of this that she had found. Mm. Look forward to it. And then we've got what's really connected to the Danites is the Whistling Whittlers. Um, and we run into this uh, this idea in Mormonism. I was taught this story that there were these kids, just young boys in Nauvoo, and that they were helping to protect the women as they were walking down the street by themselves. And these, these young men, erotic priesthood holders, um, these young men uh, would just have a little tiny pocket knife and just be whistling and whittling out their little toys out of their wood and, and just trying to, to kind of keep an eye on the town and, and keep it safe. And even BYU studies goes so far as to promote that view by calling them young men. And they use one example. And the one example is a young man. He's in his teenage years. I, I don't have it in front of me, but they do use an example of that. But you and I both know now on this side of, of things that they are ironic priesthood holders, but that's, but in that moment, and by the way, there's a great, um, uh, from men to, from boy, as a boys to men, to, oh my goodness, I'll have to try to find the article really quick. But um, somebody wrote a really great article about the progression of the priesthood and when it was handed out to who, uh, based on their ages. And what we know is that in early church history, the church priesthood wasn't parsed out the way it is today. It was all adult men who were priesthood holders, with a few exceptions, but it was adult men who were priesthood holders. Hence, the ironic priesthood would have been adult men. Hence, the whistling whittlers would have been grown men. And we know from the historical uh, context of those men that it was Bowie knives not pocket knives, and that there were violent acts carried out that people who the church didn't want to be in town, they left town. And a good prime example, not where it happened, but the context of them mentioning it is sufficient. William Marks is the stake president of the Nauvoo stake. And when Joseph Smith uh, dies... Uh, he meets with Emma trying to figure out the best way to uh, move forward with putting somebody responsible in place in church leadership and who who has the keys, who is uh, who has the authority. Um, you've got the book there in front of you, by the way. I've got this book. Yep. More in Hierarchy, Origins of Power by D. Michael Quinn. Excellent. And I'm going to put it up on the screen here. And if you'll let us know what is said there by Quinn in regards to William Marks. Right. Well, this is on page 177. And he's just talked about one individual in Nauvoo who was uh, basically bedaubed with privy dirt, which means they took a bunch of crap, literal human feces, and smeared it all over him. So that guy leaves town, believe it or not. And um, this is what Quinn writes. 
Unsurprisingly, after the anointing of Washington Peck, that was the young person who got that treatment, the ex-president of Nauvoo's state, because this is in 1845, after he's been removed from leadership by Brigham Young, he suddenly left the city. William Mark spared himself the repressive tactics which the Twelve and their supporters were using against suspected dissenters. Once again, this is not Gentiles. These are members of the church who are suspected of dissenting from the Twelve and Brigham Young's, I almost said rule, but I'll just say leadership. Young, Brigham Young, dryly observed that Brother William Marks had gone without being whittled out. So that's what Brigham Young said about William Marks, that he left town without being whittled out. In other words, this these tactics of the whistling whittling brigade. When we say deacon today, we think of little kids. Back then, they were grown men. And those are the members of the whistling and whittling brigade. And I think there may have been some bishops there too. And so it's not a bunch of little boys with what a pocket knives going around and whistling and making people nervous. These are grown men and young men with Bowie knives who are congregating around people in the street and whistling and using the Bowie knives to whittle these sticks in a rather threatening way. I, I can't speak for everybody, but I sure would be threatened if I were surrounded by a bunch of men who are whistling and whittling their sticks with Bowie knives. And I would get out of town too, if that happened to me. Apparently it was very, very um, effective. So armed with knives from 10 to 14 inches long, 10 to 14 inches long. Yeah, these aren't little boys. That's, right, and the knives aren't little knives. No. A dozen young men and adults of the Whistling and Whittling Brigade, I'm still reading from Quinn, pressed close to a dissenter or suspicious non-Mormon, and their incessant whittling with those large knives was enough to strike terror to the hearts of the victims. And he got out of town as quick as his legs could carry him. Of these whittlers, Young observed that, quote, at the corner of every block, a deacon is found attending to his duty. And every part of the city is watched with the strictest care. Quinn remarks, although romanticized, as young boys who bluffed away adults, these whittlers were hardly boys and their actions were sometimes violent. Yeah, and you've even got a case down there. Uh, I don't know if that's part of this story or not. April 3rd, Hosea Stout, which by the way, if you want to know who the most uh, violent person was within early Mormonism, willing to carry out all the orders, go read a biography on Hosea Stout. Um, recorded that Brigham Young commended the temple police for beating a man almost to death in the temple. So there's another side, uh, another side note of Brigham Young approving of violence where the police had beat a man um, almost to death. Um, in the temple. Yeah. In the temple. Yes, temples yeah. were used differently back then than they are today, definitely. So he had also said the 1845 rolls showed that the youngest member of Nauvoo's ironic priesthood was 17 and the oldest was 53. One witness saw a Nauvoo dissenter, that's a member of the church, a dissenter going out of town whittled by about 20 men with long bowie knives, I should say bowie knives, forgive me, Jim, bowie knives 
kicking him down and pushing him in the mud and etc for three quarters of a mile yeah and, and for folks i did find the source it's from men to boys lds priesthood history william hartley journal of mormon history volume 22 issue one back from 1996 and Brother Hartley's a believing, faithful member of the church, and he essentially goes into the, his the historical documents and shows when various ages were, when certain priesthood offices uh, were carried out in those ages. And again, it, just to note, it's just it's just a fact. There were very few uh, people, men under the age of eighteen, who were members of the Aaronic priesthood um, in the time of early church history that we're talking about. Right. And to be fair on what's going on, if we need to be fair, and I think we do, was this, this was a time of great tumult in the church. Joseph Smith had just died. They've got people trying to force him out of town. They're very concerned about things. But it's important to put that in context, but still to recognize that this violence was not only happening, it was approved of by Brigham Young, by the church leaders. And that's the point of the podcast that, that you chose for the subject. Yeah. Uh, anything else with them? And I'll move on to the next one. Yeah. Not only are there oaths in the temple that if you reveal the secret name, signs and tokens that you agree that your life should be taken in any of a number of creative and interesting ways. Not only that, but also there's something else related to the violence that was going on in the temple as well. Isn't that right, Bill? It is. So the next one is the Oath of Vengeance. And uh, in Mormonism, the oath of vengeance was part of the endowment ritual. And so as part of the covenants that you made, um, and again, this is this has a lot to do with that persecution complex and the idea that, you know, they had killed our prophet. They, they, they martyred him. Um, and, and, and also when you give people a persecution complex, you do stir them up to the point where they're more likely to do violent acts. And so when you're part of the uh, endowment in the early, uh, it says here from 1845 to about 1930, early 1930s, uh, what you promised was you and each of you do covenant and promise that you will pray and never cease to pray to almighty God to avenge the blood of the prophets upon this nation and that you will teach the same to your children and to your children's children under the third and fourth generation. Um, essentially, the, they've killed Joseph Smith, and you you should be praying uh, constantly, you know, never cease to pray that God avenge the blood of our, of our dear prophet. It gives new meaning to the New Testament expression, faith without works is dead. Yeah. Yeah. And again, without works, right? Like, so if the chance comes and, and by the way, this oath of vengeance plays into at least in part in terms of how they try to excuse it away with the mountain meadows massacre. Uh, yes, absolutely. We'll a little bit too. Oath they of vengeance. Anything else? God to, Please. Oh, I was just saying they, at mountain meadows, they weren't just waiting for God to, or praying to God to take his vengeance. They were lending a helping hand. Yeah. And in the follow-up, the follow-up after it happens, because we're going to talk about Mountain Meadows Massacre, but not directly. There's a kind of a side tangent there that that's part of the show. But though they kind of excused it away as these were the people who killed the first. They tried to blame it on the Indians, the Native Americans. And, and when they did that, Brigham Young comes in 
years later, after we know he knows that it's uh, the church that the church members that did it, and he's still in his writings blaming the Native Americans for it. But one of the other things, right? That, <clears throat> oh, go ahead. No, I'm just agreeing with you, and I was just saying when they also talk about the Mountain Meadows massacre in the essay about violence and Mormonism, and they acknowledge the fact that the Paiutes who were involved in this, because there were some Paiutes involved with it. But the thing that never got mentioned was that they were actually members of the church. Yeah. The, those Paiutes. Right. It's not like there's Mormons and Native Americans. They're just Mormons. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that comes up once uh, church members start to sense that they are going to have to take the fall for this thing they did was to claim that this party uh, that gets killed as part of the, the Mountain Meadows massacre, that they were, that they contained those who uh, had committed uh, the martyrdom of Joseph Smith. Oh, you're muted. Right. That was their entire, but it wouldn't be really be an episode of Mormonism Live if I didn't start talking. Yeah, when I was gotta have it at once. I do that intentionally. It's like a running gag at there my expense. Go. But yes, that was one of their big reasons for why it was that they, uh, did what they did and and slaughtered these people who were older than just little children. Yeah. Uh, about 120 of them, I believe, under the most reprehensible, treacherous ways possible to imagine. And they, they did that. And one of the reasons they, they had for it, and I don't know if it was created after the fact or if it was used in order to foment the anger, is that these people were involved in the murder of the prophet Joseph. And it was like that gave it absolute legitimacy to what they did because they are now fulfilling the oath of vengeance that they had taken upon themselves in the temple. And just to note, the group of people slaughtered in the Mountain Meadows massacre incident were completely unconnected to the people in Carthage, Illinois, who martyred the prophet Joseph Smith. I believe they were from Arkansas. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Um, okay. Anything else with that? We'll move on to uh, a couple of things that Brigham Young did uh, in yes. terms of his teachings. Tell um, us, Bill. Yeah. The, I'll give, I'll give the first one and you tell us the second one. The first one is this idea is of if you caught your wife in adultery, you could put a javelin uh, through her and the person that she was uh, being uh, intimate with. And so let me put that one up on the screen. So this is the Journal of Discourses. This is, um, let's see here. It looks like 16th of March, 1856. I'm just trying to find if they've got a, a volume. Da, da, da. Uh, I don't see it here, but okay. here's, the, here's the quote. We'll go back down to that. Uh, you say that a man ought to die for transgressing the law of God. Let me suppose a case. Suppose you found your brother in bed with your wife and put a javelin through both of them. You would be justified and they would atone for their sins and be received into the kingdom of God. You'd be doing them a favor. I yeah, would at absolutely. once, yeah, I would at once do so in such a case. In other words, I would do it if, if I caught my brother uh, pound, you know, nailing my wife, I would put a javelin through the two of them, you know? And by the way, I think he means brother in terms of uh, a male in the church. Yeah, not a sibling. Right. Right. Because that would be real. That'd be pretty bad, too. 
Thank you, Brother RFM. You're welcome. I would at once do so in such a case, and under such circumstances, I have no wife whom I love so well that I would not put a javelin through her heart, and I would do it with clean hands. But you who trifle with your covenants, be careful, lest in judging you will be judged. Um, Every man and woman has got to have clean hands and a pure heart to execute judgment because the people who do the murdering, those are the cleanest ones of all. (laughs) Well, absolutely. You want to have clean hands when you put a javelin through somebody. Otherwise, the wound could get infected. Right. A pure heart to execute judgment, else they had better let the matter alone. And again, if you go on to Fair Mormon and you raise this as your question, they'll point you to their article where they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, Brigham said that. But notice what he said next. He said, you ought to only do it if you have clean hands. You ought to only do it if you're if you're one who doesn't trifle with your covenants. And the reality is, again, there are people who are so zealous about the gospel that they think themselves to be righteous. Mm-hmm. And they think they are the ones who are called Lafferty brothers, called mm-hmm. to execute the judgments of God. Right. And these are the type of teachings that are in the Journal of Discourses. They're relatively easy to find in this day of the internet. And these are the teachings that the church really needs to, to name, give references, give the quotes, and disavow them. Because what they do by just ignoring things and you know not emphasizing them, not teaching them until they fade into obscurity, but are still able to be found, it's just like the line from Poltergeist. They move the headstones, but they leave the bodies. Yeah. There are plenty of teachings that those who think the prophets are only playing word games with the non-member public or with the government, for instance, in the 1800s around polygamy. And then these members who are overzealous go back into the historical documents and they think these are the true teachings of Mormonism. I did. And I thought, well, I'm finding out the secret stuff. This is the stuff that I hear about. This is the meat that's always supposed to come after the milk, but we never seem to get to the meat. We're just always just promised. But now we find this, or I found it, and I think, ah, I found the meat. And then I think, okay, well, the church leaders must still believe this. They just can't talk about it openly, which makes the mystery and the attraction and the allure of it that much greater. Perfect. And so here's the next one, which this connects to. This is sort of the same kind of thing, but this is much more direct. Uh, Tell us about blood atonement. I will tell you about blood atonement. Blood atonement was the doctrine taught by Brigham Young and others that there were some sins so severe that the blood of Christ could not cover them. In other words, there was no forgiveness through the atonement of Jesus Christ and his blood. And the only way that they could be forgiven was for the offending party to either shed his or her own blood or have it shed for them. So here's a, an illustrative quote. This is uh, this is actually in Journal of Discourses, Volume 3, page 247. Brigham Young speaking. There is not a man or woman who violates the covenants made with their God. By the way, what is it we hear about all the time today? This is Get the on the covenant path. path. The covenant path. Stay on the covenant path. <laughs> oh my gosh i'm gonna hate listening to this later because i sound so froggy there's not a man or woman who violates the covenants made with their god 
that will not be required to pay the debt. You violate your covenants with God, you have to pay the debt. The blood of Christ will never wipe that out. Your own blood must atone for it. And the judgments of the Almighty will come sooner or later. And every man and woman will have to atone for breaking their covenants. He goes on. To what degree will they have to go to hell? They are in hell enough now. I do not wish them in a greater hell when their consciences condemn them all the time. Let compassion reign in our bosoms. Try to comprehend how weak we are, how we are organized, how the spirit and the flesh are continually at war. So once again, this idea is that by murdering or shedding the blood of someone who has violated their covenants, thereby putting themselves beyond the reach of Christ's atonement, we are having compassion for them. And compassion is reigning in our bosoms because we love them so much that we will murder them. We literally love them to death. Um, the it, it, And certainly there's this connection, right? Like we members of the church need to be saviors on Mount Zion. Um, there's this connecting point where he's saying like, look, you, you in effect are helping them to get to heaven by committing some sort of atrocity and shedding their blood on their behalf. Right. What I didn't know was that when we're saviors on Mount Zion, there's also a guillotine up there on top of the mountain and that's how we're saving people. Yeah. Yeah. You got to kill them first before you can do the work for them. Right. And let God sort them out. Let God do the sorting. <clears throat> All right. Um, blood atonement. We've got the javelin. Now we'll go to the point about Mountain Meadows uh, Massacre. Uh, this is Wilford Woodruff's journal. Um, let me see here. A very cold morning. So on the left-hand side, right about in the middle, there's a little symbol next to 25 there with a check mark. A very cold morning. That's the section I'm going to be reading. And uh, let's see if we can... Maybe get that to be, uh, we can get it right about there. Uh, here we go. So uh, Mountain Meadows, this was what Wilford Woodruff reported when Brigham Young and the Saints, including Wilford Woodruff, found the Mountain Meadows monument that was put in place by the officers who uh, had essentially been trying to deal with the aftermath of that event. Uh, the quote from Wilford Woodruff journey, uh, journals reads simply, a very cold morning, much ice on the creek. I wore my great coat and mittens. We visited the Mountain Meadow Monument put up at the burial place of 120 persons killed by Indians in 1857. Now, again, at this point, these guys have got to know that this isn't the case. Wilford Woodruff, Brigham Young, surely, Wilford Woodruff almost, you know, again, almost guaranteed to know as well because he was so high up in leadership. He says, right, and this was May, oh, I'm sorry, I was just going to say this is May Please. 25th, 1861. So this is four years later, I believe. Yeah. The pile of stone was about 12 feet high, but beginning to tumble down. A wooden cross was placed on top with the following words. Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, saith the Lord. Now, that's what the officers would have had uh, the people there inscribe on the monument to uh, be in remembrance of the folks who were killed in this event. 
that the Mormons had committed this atrocity. And Wilford Woodruff then tells us President Young said it should be vengeance is mine and I have taken a little. Now, this is coming from the leader of the people who did the killing. And this seems to be a very direct justification. Again, we argue in the um, critics versus apologist world about whether there's any evidence out there that Brigham Young actually ordered the Mountain Meadows to happen. I don't think any evidence exists of that. But we do know by the two quotes we just shared and by others that Brigham Young very much set a tone that violence was okay in, in the time that Mountain Meadows occurred. And here you have Brigham Young after the incident essentially giving his full approval to what had happened there. Right. So regardless of whether Brigham Young ordered this, and I think the evidence is probably a little uh, in favor of his not having ordered it. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, four years later, when he comes there and Wilfred Woodruff, the great journal keeper of Mormonism, if he writes it generally, you can take it to the bank. But he quotes Brigham Young as saying, uh, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and should be added, and I have taken a little. Which tells me that what Brigham Young is saying is that the murder of these 120 settlers was justified as a revenge killing. He's expressing he says, in, a, in a weird way, he's expressing gratitude that it happened. Right. And he's saying God killed these people and God has taken a little bit of his vengeance because obviously the sign is supposed to be there as a denunciation of those who committed this atrocity that ultimately the justice of God will catch up with them. So they're quoting it from the Bible, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And Brigham Young says, yeah, and it should add, and I have taken a little. And this was so he just turns a, it around and applies it to them. This was the just a people. party of people who were trying to get to a new place to, to start over again. And um, they're not really wanting to be bothered or to bother the Mormons. Um, it, it really is an atrocious moment in Mormon history. Right. It's Iron County. I think you can tell me if I'm right about my geography, but this is the extreme southwest corner of Utah. Yep. Right down here, sort of between St. George and uh, Cedar City. Right. And there were all sorts of things that were going on. You've got the U.S. Army coming from the east and you've got concerns that, you know, these settlers, they've been harassed and now they may end up going out to California and informing against them, there are some allegations that they said that that's what they were going to do. And then they're going to have uh, military coming at the Mormons from the east with Johnson's army and from the west with whoever they can rally from California. So there's lots of things that are going on. I mean, it's a classic instance of how atrocities can be committed by people who are otherwise good and decent. Yeah. But here Brigham Young gives his sanction to what was done, whether he did it before, <clears throat> open question. He certainly appears to have done it afterward. Yeah. And the the next one we're going to go into, I'll let you tell this story as well. Um, this may seem unrelated at first because there is this rogue leader who seems to do a thing. Um, tell us about uh, what this rogue leader, Bishop Warren Snow, did. Bishop Warren Snow. I was a bishop. Yeah, a lot of... I'm sorry. I was a bishop. This is a fellow bishop. Me and me and Bishop Snow, were, we were both bishops. Yes. Well, once a bishop, always a bishop. Yeah. Just says a lot about your character. 
And most people know about this story. Although I think that D. Michael Quinn gives a little bit more detail and he helped me understand a little bit more about the story. The story as it's generally told is that the bishop has his eyes on this buxom young lady and he wants her to be another of his wives. And so he gets designs on her. The problem is, is that there's this other guy who's the lady's age named Thomas Lewis. And Thomas Lewis does not want to give up his girlfriend, his betrothed, the woman he's planning on marrying. I don't think he has any wives at this point. I think this is the one, the first one. And so true everything love. is the course of true love never did run smooth, did it, Bill? Mm. Mm. Yes. Uh, so what happens then is that he is promised celestial glory if we'll give up his, his intended to the bishop. He says, no way. I am marrying her. Um, he's called on a mission. He says, no, thanks. I was born at night, but not last night. I'll decline the mission call. So they do everything they can to get him away from this girl. And then finally, when nothing else works, the bishop castrates him or the bishop and or others at his direction. Castrate Thomas Lewis. And so that's the way the story is told. But um, here it is. We are in Quinn's second book in his Mormon hierarchy series. This one's Extensions of Power. And it's page two five zero, and just and so folks see it on the screen, that the the three pages that RFM is going to read from, I'm showing you to you now. Then I'm going to show you here that we've marked those three pages. We've then cut out those sections, and we put them into this page. And so oh, I can do that. <clears throat> I'll just read off the screen then. Perfect. In the midsummer of 1857, Brigham Young also expressed approval for an LDS bishop who had castrated a man. In May 1857, Bishop Warren S. Snow's counselor wrote that 24-year-old Thomas Lewis has now gone crazy after being castrated by Wouldn't Bishop you? Snow. Wouldn't you after having, you know? I... There's so much that is painful about this, physically and emotionally, religiously and spiritually. Yeah. But yeah, um, after being castrated. So uh, the counselor writes to Brigham Young that this 24-year-old Thomas Lewis has now gone crazy after being castrated by Bishop Snow for an undisclosed sex crime. All right. So this is the, the status of the documentary evidence, I believe, that Bishop Snow did castrate Thomas Lewis for an undisclosed sex crime. No details. All right. When informed of Snow's action, Brigham Young said, I feel to sustain him. Even though Brigham Young's brother, Joseph, a general authority, disapproved of this punishment. In July, Brigham Young wrote a reassuring letter to the bishop. Because obviously, this guy's just castrated a 24-year-old member of the church. It's the bishop who needs comforting and reassurance, right? In July, Brigham Young wrote a reassuring letter to the bishop about this castration in which he said, just let the matter drop and say no more about it, and it will soon die away among the people. Did you want to say something about that, Bill? Only that it's a false prophecy, because here we are in 2022, and we're mentioning it again. Well, there you go. Now, there was a, um, a footnote, a long footnote. It's footnote 170 in the book Extensions of Power. Because I think that what D. Michael Quinn, he writes very dense prose. And I have to 
go over some of it very carefully and try and piece out what it is he's saying. But part of that footnote says this. Some reminiscent accounts confused this 1857 incident involving a Welshman. All right. So what he's saying is that Thomas Lewis is the Welshman who was castrated by Bishop Snow in 1857. Okay. So some reminiscent accounts written later, reminiscing about what happened, confused this 1857 account incident involving a Welshman with an 1859 incident in which a diary referred, a diary referred to an unnamed bishop who had just castrated a young Danish man, not Welsh, Danish man, so that the bishop could marry his girlfriend. So what he's suggesting here is that it may be that this idea about the castration in order for the bishop to marry a girlfriend is something that happened in 1859 with a young Danish man. And apparently in this reminiscent account, the Danish man is not named, the bishop is not named, but the details given about the bishop wanting to marry the young man's girlfriend. And D. Michael Quinn says, some reminiscent accounts claimed the bishop in this 1859 castration was Warren Snow. So some accounts do name the bishop as Warren Snow. It's the same one as in the 1857 incident. And Quinn concludes, this indicates either that Bishop Snow committed a second castration, which is not inconceivable in view of Brigham Young's approval of the 1857 castration, or that later accounts mistakenly blamed him for a castration performed by someone else two years before. Yeah. And and you mentioned that there is a third possibility. And again, unfortunately, D. Michael Quinn's passed away and we can't can't ask him to try to sort this out for us. But uh, the third possibility is that these are the same account with different sources having different years and different heritages or or uh, homeland births of the men. In other words, it's the same bishop, the same person being castrated, but that multiple accounts confuse the year and confuse the heritage of the person who was castrated. I did say that, but you know why it is I think that D. Michael Quinn didn't come down on that. I'm just noticing this in this footnote because he said a diary referred to an unnamed bishop who had just castrated it would have been contemporary. a young Danish man in 1859. Yeah. So, so it is two accounts. I see why he didn't think it was two separate castrations. He sees it as two, uh, uh, excuse me, that's why D. Michael Quinn didn't see it as one castration being recalled differently, but he sees it as two castrations, one in 1857 and one in 1859. Yeah, we know because of Brigham Young's letter that the one occurred in 1857 for sure, and now we have a second diary incident in 1859 that mentions a second castration, and it seems as though that there's a high likelihood that Warren Snow would have been the person who did both of them, and that, as you as you point out from the writing here, that Brigham Young's approval might have been seen as giving approval to him doing one in the future as well. Right. So two castrations, 1857, 1859, by bishops in Utah. By the way, Bill, you mentioned you were once a bishop. How many young men did you castrate? That's what I, I want to know. I never castrated any young men, any old men. I never sought after anyone else's wives. Um I, I really tried to play by the book and uh, and to be a good bishop, but not all of us. You know, there's a lot of 
there's a lot of bishops who are arrested in the modern age for doing lots of crazy things as well. Oh my gosh. Yes. And to people younger than 24, much younger. Yeah. I used to think it was a badge of honor to tell people that I had served as a bishop, but I don't, I don't mention it as often anymore. Mm. Hmm. Well, in my eyes, you'll always be my bishop. Hillary. Nice. Nice. Um, all right. So that takes care of that one. Uh, let's see here. The next one that we've got, um, we're coming closer and closer to the present. This is the chronology of which you spoke. Yeah. So this is, yes, yes. So uh, now we've got, oops, let me get rid of, let me put something else up on the screen. This is Marion G. Romney. I remember him. Yeah. And uh, if I do a little search here, oops, let me go yes. here and click this. Control. I F. remember Romney. Yeah, Marion G. Romney. Let's, here's the great thing he said. Uh, when he was sent on his mission, he goes, um, uh, he's talking about how his father and his mother went to the train station to send him off on his mission. We heard the whistle. In three minutes, I would be on my way to Australia to fill a mission. In that short interval, my father said to me, among other things, quote, my son, you are going a long way from home. Your mother and I and your brothers and sisters will be with you constantly in our thoughts and prayers. We shall rejoice with you in your successes. We shall sorrow with you in your disappointments. When you are released and return, we shall be glad to greet you and welcome you back into the family circle. Now, here's where the really good, healthy advice comes in. That's very but nice, that sentiment so far. Yeah, but remember this, my son. We would rather come to this station and take your body off the train in a casket than to have you come home unclean, having lost your virtue. Mm. Man, and this obviously had a lasting impression on uh, on Brother Romney, but I don't see in any world where this would be a healthy thing to say, because what you're essentially saying is, son, if you do something on your mission that you you are, or you're contemplating doing something on your mission where you might lose your virtue. For instance, having sex with someone, hmm. you would be better off making sure that you come home in a casket rather than coming home unclean. Exactly. So what happens when, if a person does succumb to the temptation of those very attractive Australian girls? Yeah. And so they succumb to the temptation. Now, what do they do? Yeah. What do they do? If you heard this advice, the shame and guilt, the emotional havoc that that you would be feeling, I, I think would be significant if you took your dad and or took the gospel seriously. How do you go home after that? Yeah. And it, and it's not, you know, it's it's bad enough that he said it. It's still on the church's website. This is still an approved talk by the church. Now, you know, at some point they'll probably remove this. I wish they wouldn't. It's one of the things I don't like that they do because it's it's going to come up here in the next one as well. I, mm -hmm. I wish because they've done it before. They delete things that they finally come around to and and figure out are unhealthy. It would be better, and they and they've done this too, by the way. It would be better if they acknowledge that their approach has changed, that they would disavow the past thing, which you mentioned earlier, disavow yes. the past thing, and allow people to still see the teaching but to clearly see that the church has disowned the teaching. Right. And so everybody knows if you're not as old as I am, and I hope you're not, this story 
when I joined the church in 1978, it didn't take me long for me. To, it didn't take long for me to hear this story. And I heard it repeatedly. And everybody in my group of associates and friends in the church, they all knew this story because it's very dramatic. It increases its circulation. It was said by a member of the first presidency of the church, Marion G. Romney, and everybody knew this story. And, you know, we had Richard Dutcher on the show a few weeks ago, a few months ago now. And his movie, which was God's Army, the second one, States of Grace, part of that deals with this very issue of this missionary in Southern California who ends up falling for and having sex with this other gal who lives in the apartment building. And he comes back the next morning. Uh, he is totally depressed. He's desperate because of what his dad said to him, which was quoting this to him when he left, right? So what does he do? Well, he tries to kill himself. Yeah. And, and while the movie is a movie, certainly yes. it, there have been young men who have taken their life because of the teaching. And, it, and again, it's not just bad enough that it got said and taught. It's not just bad enough that it's still on the church's website with approval, but it got repeated as well. Now, this talk has been removed. I can't find the original source. But what the I title is we the title is we believe in being chased, and I think they should change the title to we believe in being chased or dead. Yeah, this is uh, Apostle Mark E. Peterson's voice that you are about to hear. So you could hear. I'll go back here to to Romney's quote. Romney's quote doesn't uh, explicitly say to take your life. It's more implicit. But Marky e. Peterson makes sure to clean that up and make it explicit. The leaders of our church have said that they would rather see their children dead and in their graves clean than to have them live an unclean life. Virtue is more important to you than your life. Protect it above your life. If the time ever comes when you must choose between the two, then sacrifice your life, but under no circumstance, sacrifice your virtue. If you ever have to choose between the two, sacrifice your life. Yes, Victorianism is with us late and soon. Yeah. Uh, so Marion G. Romney, Marky e. Peterson, encouraging on some level suicide. And certainly we all know that Utah and the Mormon church has a problem with suicide. Yes, it All does. right. Uh, the next one, to young men only. This is President Packer. I, I won't read this in my President Packer voice. It's a little long, and I'm worried that my voice will sound like yours after I get done. But oh, can you just, uh, on the really important parts, could you go into Packer for me, please? Okay, let's, let's, let's do it. Um, or Christopher Walken, that would be good too. Yeah, well, I, okay, I won't do that one. <laughs> I just, Maven drew attention to that because people were noticing um, the Elder Oaks voice I did for the episode with Nemo last week. And I did it again when I was on Mormon Stories with John DeLynn, uh with Nemo as well. And this is something I've, done a bunch of is voice impressions. My daughter and I, I put it on my Facebook page, folks, you're welcome to go to it. I, I did a pod. She wanted to do a, I was doing my podcast back when I first started it, started to be a little successful. And my daughter got really excited in what I was doing. And she was in middle school or whatever. And 
uh, maybe fourth grade, fifth grade, somewhere in there. And um, she said, dad, let's do a podcast together. I said, all right, let's come up with some ideas. And she goes, let's do one where you do voices. And I said, all right, so here's what we'll do. We'll have you interview all of these famous people and I will do the voice impressions of them. I do, I do Jimmy Stewart, Kermit the Frog, uh, some pre- professional wrestlers, um, uh, Barney the, the Dinosaur. There's a whole bunch of them. So you go to my Facebook page, you can click the link. I think they're fun to listen to. At least her and I were listening to a couple of them the other day and getting a little chuckle out of it. Um, so voice impressions is something I've always kind of enjoyed since I was a little kid. But here's well, President Pat- in here with an observation. Please. You're a good dad. Thanks. Um, there's Yeah, there's like 12 episodes or something, and I, I had a lot of fun doing it with her. Um, all right, here's President Packer on page 14 of To the Young Men Only. In fact, I think I've actually got – give me just a moment because I want to have folks see the document. It's no longer in publication, I believe. Um, and I didn't – I kind of forgot I'd had this one. So let me put this up on the screen. And let me get rid of that. By the way, though, while you're doing that, yeah, references of this talk is to the priesthood session of October General General Conference Conference, 1976. Is that no longer available on the church website? Uh, I don't think so. I think the talk is completely go try to find it. But I think if you go to that conference, I think if you go to that general conference, I think it still shows President Packer's name. But if you click it, it automatically redirects you to the very next talk that was after him. Um, So I'll start reading it while you're looking for it. And when we get to the end, we can verify that that's not on the site anymore. Again, the church does remove things rather than what I think is a better, healthier approach. It's really the only healthy approach to be transparent and honest about your history. Because remember, President Elder Ballard and Elder Oaks said they've never hidden anything from us. Um, Instead of acknowledging it, leaving it there, but with big red flags that say we no longer believe this because they don't want to apologize because what it does is it brings up the problem of just how fallible these men are. Um, So they don't like to acknowledge that they used to teach it. They just want it to disappear and go down the memory hole. Um, So on page 14, and it starts here on that bottom part with the big W. Bill, uh, I've got an answer for you before you start. Please. You're never going to get to this. Not unless you do it as Christopher Walken. That's my goal. I've got the October 1976 now Peace you Session. Me. Talking through <laughs> the story. Here we are. I mean, come on. I love that impression. All right. But I'm, at, I'm on the church website, October 1976 General Conference, the priesthood session. Okay. So what let's see what we have here. What we have is nothing from okay. Boyd K. Packer. We have the Living Prophet, Rex D. Penninger, Your Gift from God, Marion G. Romney, Ready to Work Long Hours in Eldon Tanner, and Our Own Leahona by Spencer W. Kimball. That's missing. it. And okay. you go ahead, and actually I'll probably interrupt you again, but I'm just actually seeing if there's anything by Boyd K. Packer here, because I think that we're all aware that a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, which Boyd K. Packer was in 1976, is always going to be speaking in every general conference. Isn't that right? Yep. He The first presidency usually gives three talks each, and the rest of the Quorum of the Twelve give one talk. All right. And to the Sunday afternoon session, there's also a welfare session because back then it was really hardcore. Uh, 
Okay, I've reviewed all the talks given in October 1976 General Conference. Guess which of the 12 apostles apparently did not give a talk in that conference? Or it was erased. Hmm, I wonder. It's Boyd K. Packer. I don't see any talk given by him in any of the sessions of October 1976 General Conference. It does appear that the church has removed that talk from its website and then covered their footsteps. So Mormonism... Mormonism did to Boyd K. Packer what Fair Mormon did to me and what the Midnight Mormons did to some of Jim Bennett. Oh, you're right. Yeah. You're right. Down the memory hole with you. Mode of operandi. By the way, what was it that Elder Ballard said in that face-to-face devotional? Uh, It was this, I think. This this idea that the church is hiding something which we would have to say as two apostles who have covered the world and know the history of the church and know the integrity of the first presidency in the quorum of the 12 from the beginning of time there has been no attempt on the part in any way of the church leaders trying to hide anything from anybody just notice by the way that the church was so in favor of this talk in 1976 that they created a pamphlet that the bishops, I had these pamphlets in my office when I was a bishop. Uh, These had last, you could still order these five years. I don't know how long ago it was five to 10 years ago. These were done away with, but the church was so proud of this talk in 1976. You know, they've removed it since. So you go like, Oh, they just, they weren't, they weren't very okay with that. They removed it. No, they removed it in the modern moment. But immediately following, they loved this talk so much, they created a pamphlet called To Young Men Only by Boyd K. Packer. And let's see if I can get to the... Do you have the first page of that, by the way? Oh, yeah. Let's go back here. I was just wondering about this. Oh, here it says. Look at this. Wait, To Young Men Only by Boyd K. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. You say it. No, you're good. Say it. To Young Men Only. This is inside the cover. To Young Men Only, Boyd K. Packer. An address given at the priesthood session of General Conference, October 2nd, 1976. This this idea that the church is hiding something, which we would have to say as two apostles who have (laughs) covered the world and know Uh, the history of the church and know the integrity of the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve from the beginning of time. There has been no attempt on the part in any way of the church leaders trying to hide anything from anybody. Never. Not a not a not a damn one time. Not a single, not a single one. Uh, Nemo, Nemo, add this one to your document, Nemo. Nemo, you're you are putting together a, a living document that has all of the hidden things, all of the dishonesty. Uh, make sure you add this one. Yeah, let me tell you, if you had a document that had all of the dishonesty, you'd be running into a major league treatise. Might as well call it the sealed portion. It'd be so big. (laughs) Okay. Now, after we've established the fact that the church has sent this talk down the memory (laughs) hole and used all of its methods and its stratagems in order to not allow people and members of the church to know that this talk was ever given. Okay. Go ahead and read. What was in this talk that you wanted to focus on, please? I repeat very plainly, physical mischief with another man is forbidden. It is forbidden by the Lord. 
There are some men who entice young men to join them in these immoral homosexual acts. If you are ever approached to participate in anything like that, it is time to vigorously resist. While I was in a mission on one occasion, a missionary said he had something to confess. I was very worried because he just could not get himself to tell me what he had done. After patient encouragement, he finally blurted out, I hit my companion. Oh, is that all? I said in great relief. But I floored him, he said. After learning a little more, my response was, well, thanks. Somebody had to do it, and it wouldn't be well for a general authority to solve a problem that way. I am not recommending that course to you, but I am not omitting it. You must protect yourself. Boyd K. Packer. That was absolutely a fantastic impression. By the way, reading through this, uh, I think a lot of people have heard this before, but if not, you have now. It's interesting to me that he's so concerned about what this missionary is having trouble confessing to him because obviously he thinks it's going to be something sexual in nature, right? He's going to think it's something bad. It's going to be sexual. And then the missionary finally says, I hit my companion. And the response is by Elder Boyd K. Packer is one of great relief. And he says, oh, is that all? So obviously there's a hierarchy and decking your companion on a mission is somewhere much lower than having a sexual transgression. Yeah. And, you know, I, I understand if somebody is trying to sexually assault you, I absolutely have no uh, issue with you having to protect yourself. Not, not like, Hey, I'm going to punch this guy out because my ego says that, uh, that he bothered me rather that if I need to use physical force to protect myself, I totally understand that. But what president Packer seems to not really want to, to meet in a healthy way is that when you talk this way about people who are highly marginalized and for which there is already a high level of violence being uh, enacted towards, you are creating a safe environment for people to think it's okay to use violence against homosexuals for no reason at all. Right. Exactly. All right. There's that one. Um, and then just, I'm, I put the document up on the screen so folks can see it. That's the very ending on the next page there. Page 16. Mm. I'm mm -hmm. going to get rid of that one. Um, and then the, the last thing we run into here is elder Holland and his musket talk. Um, which somebody said to me the other day, maybe it was you, I don't remember who it was that said it, but somebody said, hey, if Elder Holland were in front of us and willing to talk honestly, that he would probably express deep regret over having said what he said here in this talk. Uh, anything no, before I push I play? I said that. Just to okay. say that wasn't I who said it. Gotcha. Uh, are you ready for me to push play or do you have anything else to add before we push it? Because I doubt that he would express regret, honest maybe, or otherwise. Maybe he might Go ahead. I think this is no, from I'm August of last year, 2021, right? Um, I don't know the date on it per se. Let me see if I've got it in my, uh, I don't have it in my notes here. Pretty sure. If, if not, then anybody in the audience can correct me in the live chat. Okay. Let me make this big screen. Nelson chairs our board. 
holds our purse strings and has the final yay or nay on every proposal we make, from a research lab to more undergraduate study space to approving a new pickup for the physical facility staff. Russell M. Nelson is very, very good to listen. He is very good to listen to us. We who sit with him every day have learned the value of listening carefully to him. Three, day, three years later, 2017, Elder Dallin H. Oaks, then, not then, but soon to be in the First Presidency, he would be sitting where only one chair, one heartbeat away from the same position President Nelson now has. He quoted our colleague, Elder Neil A. Maxwell, who had said, and I quote, in a way, Latter-day Saint scholars at BYU and elsewhere are, are a little bit like the builders of the temple in Nauvoo, who worked with a trowel in one hand and a musket in the other. Today, scholars building the temple of learning must also pause on occasion to defend the kingdom. I personally think, Elder Maxwell went on to say, this is one of the reasons the Lord established and maintains this university. The dual role of builder and defender is unique and ongoing. I'm grateful we have scholars today who can handle, as it were, both trowel and musket. Then Elder Oaks said challengingly, I'd like to hear a little more musket fire from the Temple of Learning. He said this in a way that could have applied to a host of topics in various departments, but the one he specifically mentioned was the doctrine of the family and defending marriage as the union of a man and a woman. Little did he know that while many would hear his appeal, especially the School of Family Life, who moved quickly and visibly to assist, some others fired their muskets all right, but unfortunately didn't always aim at those hostile to the church. We thought a couple of stray rounds even went north of the point of the mountain. So there's that. Um, and I understand that my geography of Utah is somewhat limited, but what he's suggesting there is that if the musket fire went north of the point of the mountain, then that would be from Provo towards Salt Lake City and church headquarters. Yeah, and it's, it's you know, he quotes uh, Elder Oaks. He says, Elder, Elder Holland said, Elder Oaks told the congregation, I would like to hear a little more musket fire from this temple of learning. Then he quotes Elder Maxwell, trowel in one hand and a musket in the other. In other words, um, so first off, suggesting I want to hear a little more musket fire. Um, so increased increased use or increased sound coming from a violent weapon. Uh, quotes Elder Maxwell, trowel in one hand and musket fire in the other, which implies that if you are a builder of the kingdom, you are both having to build the kingdom by physical means and also protect the kingdom with violent weapons. Uh, he quotes Elder Oaks, I would like to hear, oh, I already said that one, I think. I would like to hear a little more musket fire from the Temple of Learning. Um, and then uh, some fired their muskets all right, but unfortunately they didn't always aim at those hostile to the church. In other words, they should always be aiming their muskets at those who are hostile to the church. And in light of the fact that this talk, that part of the talk is given around same-sex marriage and uh, how we handle the LGBT issue. And in consideration of recent events, which I'm not saying that that is a direct connection or not, 
but we sure ought to at least note that it was a Mormon kid. Um, and if you listen to his father, uh, there's a lot of, again, sort of instability mentally with what's going on in that situation. And when you say violent rhetoric, you once you say it, once it leaves your mouth, you don't have control over what people do with it. And if you're going to be a grown-ass adult like Elder Holland, then you ought to speak in ways that recognize the power of your language and words to millions of people who believe you to be a prophet, seer, and revelator, and who you tell them that you are the mind and will and voice of the Lord. Right. Good points there. I will tell you that there was a time uh, when, in context of the 1857 Reformation, where Brigham Young and others were talking about blood atonement and using very, um, well, uh, insightful language, let's put it that way, um, that that somehow they weren't responsible for what other members of the church did who may have heard that insightful language and then acted upon it. So that was me back when I was in my 20s. But now that I'm 62, experience has shown me that when you are a leader, whether it's political, whether it's religious, and you have other people who listen to you for how it is they're going to act and behave and conduct themselves, that you have to be very careful the language that you use, that it not be able to be used as a justification by someone else who hears it and then goes act out of acting out upon it literally. So I want to be clear. I have no doubt that Elder Holland was using this in a metaphorical sense. Mm -hmm. The problem is he keeps harping on it over and over again. And that's the problem. If you use metaphorical language of violence, that someone else can listen to it. And it's a very easy step for a number of people to take that metaphorical language literally and then go out and act upon it as if they've received their marching orders. One thing that I want to mention here is that the, um, the church essay, once again, on violence in Mormonism, when it's talking about the 85, 1857 Reformation, which preceded and in some part played a role in the Mountain Meadows massacre occurring. This is the quote from the church's own essay. The heated rhetoric of church leaders directed toward dissenters may have led these Mormons, the ones who committed the Mountain Meadows massacre, may have led these Mormons to believe that such actions were justified. Period. End of quote from the church essay. So the church essay itself recognizes that heated rhetoric from church leaders can lead other Mormons to believe that violent actions toward dissenters or others were justified and would actually be approved of and sanctioned and authorized by the leaders of the church who speak for God. Yeah, and, and they have, you know, one of the things um, grateful— we have scholars today who handle both trowel and musket. There's a sense of gratitude for those in the church who not only uh, build bridges or handle things in peaceful ways or build up things, but we also are grateful for those who put uh, metaphorical weapons in their hand and are willing to uh, point them 
aiming, as they said, aiming at those hostile to the church. Uh, rhetoric means something. There, there are college courses on rhetoric. I've got a friend who took rhetoric as his major in college. Um, words mean things and they drive people to feel things and they drive people to do things. And I know more than, than anyone, uh, as much as anyone that a high, a person in a high demand fundamentalist religion who knows how to work their words is constantly using words to manipulate people. For instance, uh, a testimony is gained in the bearing of it, which is just the illusory truth effect, right? Um, claiming that elevation emotion is how one feels the Holy Ghost. There are ways in which you use words and definitions. Uh, you articulate things. You have a certain vernacular that you are able to motivate people to think and feel new things or, or the things you want them to think and feel to the point where they will now go out and do the things you want them to do, even if it's not healthy that they do them. So you have to be careful. You're a leader of a of a worldwide faith, according to you. And there are millions of people who are listening to you. And, and you've got to sit down when you write these talks and recognize immediately that that kind of language is completely inappropriate. Right. And this thing that we're talking about here with leaders using language that uh, followers can act on literally isn't something that's new. In fact, it's one of uh, the themes, one of the stories in Shakespeare's play, Richard II which is one, I believe, of only two of his plays written entirely in verse. It's an absolutely gorgeous play. But what happens is that Richard II ends up being succeeded by Henry IV. And it's done in such a way, it's absolutely fascinating. I'm not going to go into that. But by the end of the play, we have a situation where Henry IV has assumed the throne and the leadership of England. But Richard II isn't dead. He's in prison in Pomfret Castle in the north of England. He's still alive. And Henry IV can't kill him because he's got the divine right of kings. His blood is divine. You can't just go willy-nilly killing a king and expect to escape the wrath of God. So he's alive. And as long as he's alive, he's a threat to Henry IV's rule. Because even though Richard II, although a lovely person, was a horrible king, and he was spending the entire kingdom into bankruptcy. So we've got this situation. And toward the end of the play, what happens is that there's a courtier whose name is, is Exton. And what he does is he tells some people that he was in a meeting in the court of Henry IV. And he tells these people that King Henry has asked his audience of courtiers, quote, have I no friend will rid me of this living fear? Now, Exton reasonably interprets the living fear as a reference to the still living King Richard, who is currently in prison at Pomfret Castle in the north of England. Exton thinks that he saw King Henry specifically look at him when he asked the question. So Exton decides that as the king's friend, motivated either by loyalty or by hope of reward, or perhaps both, he will be the man to go and kill Richard. And so there's a scene in Pomfret Castle, Richard II is there, and some things happen eventually. Exton comes in with some other fellows to help him do the deed, and they stab Richard II to death. Now, the end of the play, the final scene, I believe, has Exton bringing the body of King Richard 
to King Henry, and it's in a casket, believe it or not. It's in a casket, and he expects to be rewarded and welcomed for doing what it was that Exton thought that Henry wanted him to do. But while Henry admits that he's very glad that King Richard is dead, he denies that he actually ordered the king's murder, the former king's murder, Richard, and declares that he now loathes and repudiates Exton. He orders Exton to leave the court and wander miserably in his guilt. He exiles him for it. Now, the play doesn't answer the question as to whether Henry IV actually wanted somebody to pick up that cue and that clue when he says, well, no one, well, have I no friend will rid me of this living fear or whether he's just talking and not meaning this at all. But for purposes of what we're talking about with Elder Holland, I don't think Elder Holland meant it at all when he's, I don't think he means to encourage people to go out and take muskets to members of the LGBTQ plus community. And yet, he should be aware, as King Henry IV should have been aware, that people who hear his words may take them literally, may even imagine that he looked at them specifically when he said this, and go off and do the deed that Elder Holland never wanted them to do in the first place. Every town has its ups and downs. Sometimes ups outnumber the downs, but not in Nottingham. That's from the oh, that's, Robin that's Hood Disney cartoon. Ah, well, I'm glad. We've got Disney here to class up the show. Just because they do the King Richard Lionheart, he's, that's part of the cartoon. That's the, that's the history that they're going over. Um, I, won't, again, I won't bother you by telling you that's Richard the first. Oh, sorry. There you go. Uh, well, actually, this quote is by <laughs> Alan Adale, which I think is the rooster who plays the the guitar in uh, in the prison. So, right. I've never seen that movie, believe it or not. I love Robin Hood, but by the time that came out, it was a little bit, you know, kid stuff for me. I got so now I'm 62 and I wear Marvel t-shirts. You you stick with Shakespeare. I'll be in charge of the children's cartoons. Perfect. It's a love deal. It. Awesome. Uh, you're 100% right, though, that you, whether you knowingly do it or intentionally do it, you're planting seeds that others can see something in that maybe wasn't there. And on some level, if you are um, reckless in the rhetoric that you use, you do hold some blame for the violence that it causes. Uh, yeah, that can happen. Yeah. All right. Anything else from you? Otherwise, we'll take a few phone calls and call it a night. Let's take a few phone calls. I'm excited to hear what people think about tonight's right, show let's hope that let me know if there's any sound otherwise i got another thing i can do uh ryan you are on the line you're on mormonism live are you there yeah i'm here how you doing bill good good go ahead my friend you're on the air good. can you hear me okay yep yeah so uh i just wanted to kind of bring in a little side issue from that i've been in the chat here i'm a i i'm a former desnat mormon i was far right wing uh started i'm probably the OG Desnad of the modern era. I started a website for Mormon militia type people back in the year 2000 and uh, saw the light and escaped back in 2019, actually, when uh, they changed the temple. And uh, I started to notice inconsistencies and that my behavior was 
sexist and hurting my wife based on what I've been taught in the temple. And then I started to ask questions, stumbled on your podcast and listened to uh, you and RFM break that down. And that was my, my impetus for change. And I think that um, the side issue I wanted to bring into that is that I, I see a lot of what are more traditionally conservative members leading the church now and not only deconstructing their faith, but we're deconstructing a lot of the beliefs we had about politics and about a lot of different things about the way people should be treated. And uh, I've changed a lot. <laughs> and I was always uh, pretty, you know, far left on, on some issues and pretty far right on others, but I've changed a lot. And I think one of the big stumbling blocks to that was when I went online to, to kind of engage with ex-Mormons, there was a lot of political purity tests, it seemed like, and that I wasn't ready for that. And so I think that maybe we just need to be aware, you know, with some of these folks, that they're going to come around on LGBT rights. They're going to come around on all of the other things with time as they learn how to be good people and not just be told what to do by their leaders. But a lot of them are leaving now when they see the church inevitably shift left on issues and starting to question for the first time in their lives what their reality is. Yeah. Thank you, Ryan. Ryan, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Okay. So I just want to ask you this, and um, I think you probably got a lot of information that we don't have time for tonight, but if this is something you're experienced with, Desmond, I'd be happy to talk to you about it another time. Yeah, because I'm thinking that might be very interesting if you could tell us the inside scoop of what goes on in Desnet and what you've seen and observed. Is that something you'd be willing to talk about publicly? It, yeah, absolutely. Yes. It all starts in DNC 134. <laughs> okay. Well, let me tell you. Uh, my yep. email is radiofreemormon1 at gmail.com. That's the number one. Radiofreemormon1 at yep. gmail.com. And uh, if you would reach out to me, maybe we could get in touch and perhaps have you on the show if we can work things out. I'd be happy to send you a note. Yeah. And if for whatever, right, reason, you, that, if for whatever reason that comes back, that you, whatever reason you couldn't figure out the email, you can also go on to Facebook and you can bring up Radio Free Mormon's uh, page on Facebook and you can send him a message there as well. Absolutely. That would be, happy a, to that do would be that. a great conversation. So I hope you thank you guys. Up. Yeah. Thank you. Thank Have you, Ryan. Night. I will. You too. Okay. The next caller, um, I, I don't have the name here. What's the name, Mike? What's the name, caller? Doug. Doug. Doug oh, gotcha, Doug. How are you? Doug. Fine, man. How are you? Good, good, my friend. Howdy. You are on Mormonism Live. Uh, what's <laughs> on your mind? Yeah, I just wanted to uh, bring up something about uh, the Native Americans that were displaced by the saints when they went out west. Uh, There's plenty of violence involved in that. I'm looking at uh, a list, and it's got, like, uh, the battle in Fort Utah, 100 Timpanogos killed, one Mormon killed, uh, the Port of Rockwell massacre. Uh, this one cracks, well, doesn't crack me up, but this one will kill you. In an attempt to find horse thieves, Captain Porter Rockwell came upon a tribe of Utes. He took them prisoner, but after determining they didn't know anything about the horse thieves, he executed them. <clears throat> uh, the Utah War, um, I'm sorry, no, that's not one. The uh, Morsite War, Battle Between, nope, that's not one, sorry. The Black Hawk War, 70 Mormons killed, 140 Native Americans killed. Cir uh, Circleville Massacre, 30 Paiutes killed. 
anyway, uh, there's just a lot of violence here. And there's a couple other things that weren't related to Native Americans uh, that I kind of blurbed out there. But uh, I guess, you know, what I'm trying to say is that this part of the violence is just overlooked completely most of the time. Yeah. You know, they have the Days of 47 parade and everybody's, ah, oh, Pioneer Day, and it's a big party. And, you know, this part of the party is left out. Um, and, you know, as it is for most of the settlement of, of America, you know. But uh, <clears throat> there was indeed violence done. And continuing violence, really, if you look at, like, the Indian placement program where they rip the kids away from their folks and try to anglicize them, Mormonize them. So, yeah, we've, we've got blood on our hands. Thank you, my friend. Yeah. Thank you for the information. Yeah, there's there's a ton more violence. Obviously, we've got a hour and forty minute show or something, so we couldn't cover everything. But those were the the highlights. But you've added to that, so thank you. Yeah. Thanks for calling in, Doug. No problem. All righty. See y'all. Take it easy. Bye bye. All right. And then our last call is, uh, I believe, Roger. Roger, you're on Mormonism Live. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. Good. Good to talk to you. What do you have for us, my friend? Well, one thing that got me calling in is you talked about a couple of my uncles, <laughs> uh, Jose Stout and John D. Lee. And um, I just wanted to let you know that in Hurricane, we call it Hurricane and not Hurricane. Right. And um, Jose liked his name called Jose Stout, not Hosea or Jose or whoever. He li- it's a real weird trans- um pronunciation, but it was Housey Stout. And um, so you know that. And John D. Lee was my uncle too, and he's the only one that got shot to the the violence and up there at uh, Mountain Meadows. And, and it's hard for uh, members of the church to realize the doctrines that were going around by Brigham Young at that time, teaching uh, First Nephi that even though Nephi didn't want to kill the guy to get his plates, uh, and he, the spirit told him to, he had to do it. So, so that this is exactly what happened here. It's that uh, they even had a an understanding. They had a temple um, prayer circle before the big um, before they went against. Oh, it. This was the only way. This was the only way because they could help those poor people to get to heaven because they had, they were glad that they would be they they were going to be the or had been the people that killed Joseph Smith or had his gun or whatever, and so the people here felt that it was their responsibility to act as as, as saviors on Mount Zion. And go and kill them so that they could, and that's exactly what they did to the the young women. And, and first degree murder, they grabbed them by their hair and slit their throats from ear to ear, which is the temple, um, holy temple way of uh, killing people, and so that they could go to the celestial kingdom. And I know it's under uh, the church changes its doctrine so often. It's hard to realize what the doctrine was then and why the people would act the way they did then, uh, even though it's horrific 
They were following the will of the prophet. Yeah. Thank you, Roger. You're welcome. Have a great day. Thanks for calling in. It's a thought-stopping technique, RFM. This whole idea of living prophets trump dead prophets. It's it's designed to get the member to not look backward at what's happened before. It's the only reason. If everything was consistent, there's no reason for living tr prophets to trump dead prophets. The reason we value living prophets and the moment a prophet dies, we move on to the next one, is because things change so quickly now in the last 10 to 20 years that it's not it's not of any value for Mormons to go back more than a leader or two because things are di uh, significantly different at that point. Um, yeah, you're it, right. It's a it's a thought stopping technique, and in some cases, it's a heart stopping technique. Yeah, by all the rhetoric that we saw tonight. Um, I'm going to put up in the comments here right now. This is if folks want to join because the show's about ready to end. If folks want to join our uh, our uh, subscriber list, uh, oh, yes. that's a long, long link. So you'll have to hit pause in the show and and type it in. But it's also in the comments. So you could just copy it from the comments right into a browser. Um, I will also put this uh, in the show notes for the episode. But if you go on to Mormon Discussion Podcast uh, org, which is the the main site that hosts all of the audio for all of the shows under the umbrella, the, on the right hand side there is a spot that says to contact us or join our mailing list. Uh, we have a we have a fan base of about thirty thousand folks. But our subscriber list is only about 2,700. And we'd love, we about once a month, once a month and a half, we send out just a, an, an email that just lets you know of an interesting episode uh, that we're doing either on Mormonism Live or Radio Free Mormon or one of the other shows. Um, but it's a great way for you to stay in contact with us. We'd love for, for folks to do that. Also, hit the like and subscribe buttons uh, where you can. Uh, that helps us get our reach. Please subscribe. If you're listening to this and you love these conversations on Mormonism, hit the subscribe button. Uh, we're up to about 9,000 subscribers. Um, we're doing some advertising and stuff right now, too. I, I think my goal in my mind is that we get to about 20, 25,000 by the end of next year. And I think that's I think that's possible. Um, uh, and folks, obviously, there's a lot of work that goes into these episodes, RFM and I doing deep dives in the history, uh, having Maven help us uh, behind the scenes. Uh, folks, if if you can, um, because it's the end of the year, we're trying to to obviously uh, you know get donations. Uh, everybody, all these charities are collecting them. We just had that uh, Giving Tuesday. Um, but folks, if you could go to Mormon uh, Discussion Podcast.org, click the donate button, uh, or go to MormonismLive.org. If you go to the Mormon Discussion one, there's a drop down window. Click Mormonism Live, donate, uh, and we love recurring donations: five bucks a month, ten bucks a month, whatever you can do. Or go to mormonismlive.org uh, and click the donate button, and that will automatically be uh, split off to Mormonism Live solely. Uh, so, folks, if you could donate, that would be a big help. We it means a lot to us that that you support this program and the rest of the umbrella as well. But uh, this show just takes a ton of work, and uh, we show up every week doing deep dives on these things, and we're going to keep on doing it. And we just hope that you folks uh, will be part of the team and join us in supporting the show. For those of you who do support it, thank you very much. It means the world to us because it's it's how this many years in uh, we're able to do what we do. Absolutely. Well said. And I just want the audience to remember, if you take away nothing else from tonight's show, it was Peter who hung Judas. <laughs> All right.
Peter Hinchy. 